Hello and welcome to Extrapolator. This is Jeff Allen, and today we're turning to a discussion of AI. Today's episode follows closely on from last week. Episodes 3 and 4 really form a part 1 and a part 2 in a wider discussion of humans and animals and AI. When we ask questions about intelligence and cognition, this engages issues like how and why did intelligence evolve? What biological traits are shared by humans and chimpanzees and other non-human animals? Can we replicate biological intelligence using artificial means? And since this episode follows closely on from the last, I really recommend going back to listen to it first if you haven't done so already. In general, each episode builds on the last, so it makes most sense to listen to them in chronological order. You can probably get away with jumping around, dipping in and out, but I'm trying to lay out my philosophical programme in a logical fashion, starting with my definition of philosophy in episode 1 and building from there. And for those of you who have been following week by week, thank you for listening. Okay, that's enough preamble. Today we're talking about the past and the future of AI. My personal interest in the topic of AI is mostly due to my interest in philosophy of mind in general. For me, building artificial intelligence and artificial minds engages fascinating questions about how we conceive intelligence generally and how we conceive minds generally. But my own preferences aside, there are several broad uses for AI or rationales for doing AI. Weak AI, or narrow AI, seeks to build AI as narrow tools for certain tasks. AI can be a tool in making human lives easier in many ways, doing our computing tasks, manual labour tasks, or boring and repetitive tasks. Though eventually, AI may be capable of doing even creative or social tasks. And maybe this will make the average human life worse rather than better. But these are still merely tools, and they can be applied in different ways. AI can also be a tool for understanding our own minds. Cognitive modelling seeks to replicate human cognitive functions using artificial systems. And this immediately raises questions about how we view our own minds. Although, we don't necessarily need a robust empirical theory of human cognition before we can build cognitive models. In fact, successful AI might not match the cognitive architecture of humans. So it is hard to say whether a necessary link exists between humans and AI. There may be countless forms of possible architectures, and human intelligence is just one specific and narrow form. However, as soon as we do have successful AI systems, and we we do have some now, we can start to compare human versus artificial architecture and human versus artificial cognition. This is a field of particular interest to me, and I plan to spend much of the next year of my life working on a research project in this field. In particular, I want to look to artificial cognitive models and ask what, if anything, they can teach us about human cognition. I want to extrapolate from empirical AI research two philosophical implications about human cognition and about reality in general. The interesting thing about cognition and perception is that it immediately raises deeper ontological questions about reality itself. Since our minds construct and perceive reality, understanding this cognition and perception allows us to answer key questions about reality. Which elements do we construct and which elements are real? 
One major challenge to this research is whether we can extrapolate from AI research to human cognition. And for the sake of my research project, I'm certainly hoping it's possible. But I'll keep you posted. That was all a description of weak AI, or narrow AI. AI is tools for doing tasks or for understanding the mind. There is another area of research aimed at strong AI, or artificial general intelligence. This field does not seek to build mere tools. Rather, it seeks to build persons. Truly intelligent systems with all the relevant human-like faculties, cognitive, psychological, linguistic. And this is obviously a much more ambitious goal. It's probably decades away, since it tries to replicate the incredibly complex mental life of human beings. And perhaps even consciousness, which we cannot yet explain in human beings, let alone AI systems. My view is that there is no reason in principle why artificial general intelligence would not be possible. My refutation of essentialism in the last episode, the confused idea of natural versus unnatural, means that there is nothing in principle unique about the human mind which sets it apart from other features of physical reality. There is no reason to expect that other physical structures can't enjoy comparable faculties and processes. However, it certainly poses an immense engineering challenge. There's no issue in principle, but there is a significant issue in practice, for now at least. What I will say about artificial general intelligence is that it appears very closely linked to a kind of a practical evolutionary ability to navigate a sensory motor world. What we call intelligence increasingly appears to be related to an organism's physical and mental life in a physical environment. The research that I have conducted so far has focused on evidence which shows that intelligence and meaning are very practical. Intelligence and meaning are different for each organism. They relate to an organism's own body and a sensory motor relationship to the physical world. For now, I'm proceeding under the view that true, strong AI will only be achieved using robots, that's AI systems with physical bodies. So not Siri or some disembodied piece of software. But the history of AI has not always made this assumption. What is interesting in the history of AI is that there were trends or fashions in engineering. In building AI systems, different architectures have been used, and different architectures were fashionable at different times. Each architecture reflected a different conception of intelligence or cognition. So, the history of AI reveals trends and changing theories about the nature of intelligence. The field of AI research was only established in 1956, so it's incredibly young, all things considered. It was established by a conference which lasted several weeks at Dartmouth College in 1956. And it was at this conference that John McCarthy coined the term artificial intelligence. Some researchers now object to the term artificial intelligence as a not-so-useful description of the field, but the term has certainly stuck hard, and it's here to stay. I'll outline three overall trends in AI research, spanning from 1956 to the present. These three are computationalism, connectionism, and what is known as SED. The first dominant trend in AI was computationalism, or the symbolic approach. Crucially, 
this viewed intelligence and cognition as the manipulation of symbols. And under this view, the human mind is just a very complex computer, capable of very complex and abstract symbol manipulation. The engineering challenge for AI was to replicate the computation of the human mind by building a system that was also able to manipulate symbols. So building AI systems with this symbolic architecture involved combining discrete symbols and variables and coding explicit instructions and operations, often in a hierarchical structure. And on the positive side, this type of architecture is very precise and explicit. You can see all the coded operations and the symbols being used. But this need for explicitness is also a disadvantage. These systems aren't very good at learning, and it can be painstaking to program them with the knowledge or the information that you need. You really have to stipulate all the background assumptions in a sequential, hierarchical fashion. Everything has to be explicit, and that's time-consuming. And it's also not necessarily how human brains work. Our commonplace, everyday knowledge that allows us to commute to work or to make a lasagna involves so many different background assumptions about people, cars, maps, vegetables and ovens, and so on. And this background information is not always explicitly represented in our minds, in some ordered hierarchy, as it is in a symbolic AI program. And these symbolic systems are also brittle. Since the program is written explicitly and sequentially, any errors in one branch might cause a system-wide failure. From a purely engineering perspective, this is obviously a drawback. But by reference to human psychology, it's also not how our brains work. When you consider the research on brain trauma, for instance. Of course, symbolic systems do still have uses today, especially in search engines. But researchers have looked to other architectures. Secondly, one important alternative is connectionism, or neural networks. These networks are somewhat modelled on the human brain, which is composed of a vast number of connections between individual neurons. Artificial neural networks have a large number of connections between individual units or nodes, and so knowledge or information in the system is represented through activation patterns, the connections between these nodes. These connections can have different weights, and these weights can be updated as the system learns. And this is a core difference between computationalism and connectionism. The first encodes information in the form of explicit symbols. The second encodes information as activation patterns, connections between nodes. Connectionist symbols have several immediate advantages compared to symbolic systems. They are much better at learning, since there is not the same need for explicitness. In fact, systems can learn to perform tasks without forming explicit rules. In an early study in 1986, David Rummelhart and James McClelland built a system that could conjugate English verbs in the past tense. However, the AI system contained no explicit rules for conjugating verbs. Unlike a symbolic system, which would need explicit linguistic rules and explicit operations, the connectionist system did not represent the rules themselves. And this suggests that intelligence does not always require an explicit meta-awareness of rules and operations. These systems are capable of different types of learning. More structured, supervised learning or reinforcement learning, 
or unsupervised learning, where the system self-organizes nodes and links and updates the weights of connections in response to environmental data or stimuli. Connectionism in general involves a move away from explicitness and towards soft constraints. Rather than following explicit rules, these systems aim to satisfy multiple soft constraints. And this removes some of the brittleness found in symbolic systems. If a certain branch of the program fails, this doesn't cause system-wide failure, since there isn't the same requirement for rules to be explicitly encoded in some systematic hierarchy. Rather, processes are distributed across multiple parts of the system, so the wider system can continue to function, probably with some reduction in performance. And this is known as graceful degradation, or noise tolerance, or fault tolerance. And it's one advantage of connectionist systems over symbolic systems. Aside from computationalism and connectionism, there is a third approach. This approach attempts to build AI that is situated, embodied, and dynamical. In truth, these could be viewed as slightly separate research ideals, situated versus embodied versus dynamical. But Randall Beer usefully combines them into one framework, the SED framework, situated, embodied, and dynamical, all combined. Most importantly, this framework involves a shift in focus away from higher-order symbolic tasks and towards lower-level perceptual and motor tasks. Previously, lower-level tasks were ignored since researchers were chasing the more lofty and abstract modes of cognition. But that disregards lower-level tasks. It disregards the centrality of perception and action in animal intelligence, including human intelligence. On one view, intelligence is a set of adaptive behaviours which evolved as a tool for navigating a sensory-motor world. On this view, intelligence is a set of behaviours performed via the physical body which aid an organism's survival or reproduction. The highest expressions of human intelligence, like abstract thought or cumulative culture, which lead to complex technologies and cooperation between millions of people, arguably, these expressions are just extreme forms of the same adaptive behaviour which evolved from sensory motor origins. The SED approach takes this view, considering the setting, the environment and the physical body. Intelligence must be situated. This is based on the view that intelligence is always relative to organism-specific needs. These needs are a function of the organism's sensory motor capacities in conjunction with the surrounding environment. In episode 2, I talked about how each organism constructs the world differently for their own specific purposes. This effective environment of an organism is sometimes called an umwelt. James Gibson discusses these differences and introduces the term affordances. These affordances are the possibilities for action that an organism represents, and obviously these will differ greatly from one species to the next. Compare a human and a bee looking out over a wild meadow. Firstly, there will be a difference in colour perception, since bees can detect ultraviolet light, unlike humans, but cannot detect orange and red. So the human and the bee will each see different colours, if you will. Moreover, 
The human and the bee will represent vastly different possibilities for action. For the bee, it will be possibilities to pollinate, as markings on flowers, known as nectar guides, are made more visible due to ultraviolet detection. For Bethany, the human, the meadow may be a small blip in a wider journey. At her much greater scale, Bethany may look past the 20 metres of tangled wildflowers and trample ahead for a few short seconds to reach the ice cream van parked on the road. The situatedness of intelligence respects the role of the environment in shaping our perceptions and actions. Intelligence does not exist in a vacuum. Rather, it's an evolutionary tool to guide perceptions and actions and to navigate a specific sensory motor world. Intelligence must also be embodied. This involves a similar line of reasoning, that intelligence means you using your body to interact with the world. And this has caused a bigger shift towards robotics, AI with physical bodies, away from the pursuit of intelligent yet disembodied software. There is good reason to believe that Siri or Alexa will never reach human-like intelligence, because our type of intelligence is so closely linked to physical action in the world. Of course, they may operate on some higher plane of computation because they process such a vast network of interactions far beyond human mental processes. But if we want to emulate human-like intelligence or biological-like intelligence, AI needs embodiment. Lastly, intelligence should be understood as dynamical. In short, Dynamics is a mathematical framework which looks at the evolution of a system in terms of inputs and states and parameters and so on. It's a systematic way of analysing changes in the states of a system over time. And this is the framework being applied if you hear humans or intelligent systems being described as dynamical agents. In my view, the key implications of the SED framework come from the specific view of how bodies and minds relate to the world. This is a view that intelligence and behaviour arise from the coupled dynamics of the brain-body-environment system. Intelligence cannot be discussed without reference to the body or the environment, and the dynamical approach treats the brain and the body and the environment as one interacting system. And this is kind of a revelation, since it treats the environment as an active force, not merely a passive or fixed backdrop. The environment is not just passively there, in the same way for everyone. The environment of the wildflower meadow is constructed very differently in the perceptual apparatus of the bee compared to that of the human. Bethany the human doesn't see patterns for pollination. She sees a 20-second jog to the ice cream van. When you treat the brain-body environment as one dynamical system, then there can be a certain give and take between the animal versus the world. The theory of extended cognition or extended mind argues that the mind can extend into the physical world, beyond the body. And since the body and environment are one interacting system, there is no reason to draw a clear line between body and world at the usual limit of the physical body. Many mental processes can be extended in this way, most notably with our phones. Our reliance on iPhone calculators allows us to make quick calculations causing our own squishy brains to slowly relinquish the ability. Our brains don't need to perform the task anymore. Also, I have over a thousand notes on my phone, 
with various information about movies, books, addresses, song lyrics, philosophy ideas. This information is not stored in my brain, but I know how to quickly retrieve it and edit it. You might say that it's simply encoded in a different mental location. And more broadly, Google is having a profound effect on our cognition. We no longer need to store and retrieve random facts since they are accessible with a quick search. And this surely causes memories to degrade. Meanwhile, other faculties will take precedence. Now more than ever, we need the ability to analyse and assess vast amounts of information, analysing things like credibility and veracity. And this faculty would most usefully replace our defunct ability to recall trivial information. Pete Mantic and Andy Clark refer to the line dividing body and world. They refer to this line as somewhat odd and gerrymandered. Just as politicians gerrymander the lines of neighbouring districts, so too is the line between body and world in some way fuzzy and flexible. I certainly consider my intelligence to be dependent on my iPhone, insofar as the storage of information and the ability to perform quick calculations. So it's an intriguing concept. This wider framework also has important implications for meaning. The environment means different things to different organisms. So in a practical sense, meaning is relative to the sensory motor system and meaning is different for each organism. This is a key question for next week. Where does the meaning reside? Is it out there in the world, in some way shared by many individuals? Or is it constructed subjectively? Is there any meaning out there in the world? Or is reality inherently meaningless? I'll save that for episodes 5 and 6 on the source of meaning. So that was a brief look at the history of AI. Three competing frameworks, computationalism, connectionism, and SED. Research in this field is ongoing, and there is no settled consensus. We don't yet know which framework is best for building intelligent systems, and our conception of human intelligence is still changing. Different aspects of human intelligence seem to be reflected in all three of these frameworks. Some processes appear to be symbolic, some processes appear to be based on activation patterns, and in still other ways, our intelligence appears to be grounded in the physical environment and the physical body. In truth, perhaps human beings are a hybrid of many architectures, these and others that we have yet to formalise. And in practice, systems are now being built with hybrid architectures, with symbolic components and connectionist components, performing separate tasks but working as part of the same system. We are unlikely to find a neat solution when it comes to building these AI systems. And if we ever achieve artificial general intelligence on a par with human intelligence, the system will likely be some complicated hybrid, a mongrel, as opposed to anything neat or elegant. Humans have a very diverse range of faculties, and we are unlikely to find a straightforward way to replicate this conglomerate. I'm sticking to my guns, but intelligence is a very practical adaptation that evolved to tackle a messy and dynamical world. I predict that replicating biological or mammalian intelligence will require due consideration of these incentives, the physical environment, 
the physical body, evolutionary incentives, and survival mechanisms. I want to end this episode with a brief word on ethics. When you saw the topic of AI, maybe you were hoping for some more chat about ethics. These topics certainly seem to capture the public interest, popping up in long-form magazine articles and social media clickbait. People like to read about ethical dilemmas surrounding self-driving cars, you know, should the car prioritise the occupant or the pedestrian? Or about humans living forever as digital uploads? You know, do we even want this technology to somehow live forever? And what about class divides between those who can afford it and those who can't? We might very well witness a kind of digital Marxism, as access to new technologies intensifies wealth inequalities. These topics are vaguely amusing, and I really recommend the new show Upload on Amazon Prime. It covers self-driving cars and the digital afterlife in a very entertaining way. But... I have a confession to make. As far as philosophy goes, I don't find these topics terribly interesting. For me, it comes down to a distinction between meta-ethics and applied ethics. Meta-ethics is about the overarching scheme of our moral code, how we can justify making moral judgments at all, and what system of moral rules exists, and where moral authority comes from from God or science or just the human imagination. Meta-ethics is the global view, whereas applied ethics is the local view. It is concerned with specific case studies, euthanasia, abortion, environmental policy. These are incredibly important topics, but the devil is in the details. What is ethical will differ from case to case, the specific circumstances of the woman or the specific circumstances of the patient. Answering these questions involves a forensic look into the facts of each case, in the same way that a legal judge must examine the facts of each individual legal case. And that all sounds a bit tedious. It's an important job for someone, no doubt, but it doesn't capture my interest. And the ethics around new technologies like self-driving cars and genetically modified crops, it all smacks of applied ethics to me. The answers to all these questions are the same. It depends. It depends whether the occupant of the car is old or young, or whether the empirical studies show any health risks. These are exercises in forensic fact-finding, not philosophy. I care immensely about the global view. I am very interested in questions about our overarching moral system, and these are questions for deep philosophical inquiry. And it kind of annoys me that people want to just drag it back to self-driving cars. Who cares? The moral outcome will depend on the facts of each individual case. Great. Thank you. Next. And what I will say about the meta-ethics of AI is that true artificial general intelligence is certainly possible in principle. Since there is no essence separating humans or animals or AI, there is no reason that true AGI won't be achieved once we overcome the engineering hurdles. If and when that does happen, we'll need to reassess our position on human rights. It may very well be that future intelligence systems will qualify for the same moral protections as biological humans. 
if their inner mental lives and outer social lives are sufficiently complex, then they should have equal moral protections against harm or suffering or death and in favour of self-actualising and flourishing. And if they reach a lower bar in terms of intelligence or subjective complexity, they may only achieve some lower kind of moral status, such as the one applied to dogs. Though, overall, we may need to rethink our moral code and our legal system with respect to chimps and orangutans and elephants, which all display significant intelligence and rich social lives. And it may be that the legalistic language of rights is not the one most suitable for granting them moral protection. But one way or another, our meta-ethics must catch up with our empirical findings about the intelligence of non-human animals. So that's it for me for today. Over the past two episodes, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. The relationship between humans and non-human animals, and the wide overview of the history of AI, the different ways we conceive intelligence and conceive the human mind. I hope you'll join me next time. Look out for episode five, The Source of Meaning, part one. As always, this episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Jeff Allen. And same for the music which you can find on Spotify under the title Entry Music for a Podcast. Thanks again to my twin brother, Hugh, for creating the Extrapolator artwork. Our Instagram handle is at extrapolatorpod. And finally, you can find a bibliography for this episode on my blog at jeffallenwriting.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time.